The Spin-Off Podcast Network. When the Facts Change is brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network in partnership with Kiwi Bank. The bank for Kiwi looking to get ahead in business and in life. A bank that delivers expertise and banking know-how, smart advice for business owners wanting to invest, grow their business or diversify. A bank that adapts with technology through the lens of its people and customers. It is a bank with heart that is driven by its purpose. Kiwi making Kiwi better off. Have you seen that look that goes across a politician's face when they get asked a question? <laughs> no, they don't really want to answer. And in New Zealand, that question is, do you want house prices to fall? It's a bit like saying Voldemort in the Harry Potter movies. Or if you're into the theatre, it's like saying the name of the Scottish play, which I won't mention, but you know what I'm talking about. Here's an example of a Voldemort question to the new leader of the National Party, Chris Luxon, essentially asking the question, do you want house prices to fall? This is from Ryan Bridge. Well, I wouldn't want to see house prices fall dramatically, but there might be a period of time where house prices do come back, uh, as there has been over the last 30 years, uh, and that's purely because what's happening in the market, and it's about supply and demand. And so you know, what we really need to do is stabilise house prices, uh, build more houses, uh, and actually at the same time, work very hard on building a much more productive economy that drives higher incomes. So that makes sense, doesn't it? The idea is you have flat house prices and then income do the work and Bob's your uncle, you're at affordable housing again. And in fact, in Christchurch, that's what we saw to an extent way back 2012-13 when there were lots of houses built and incomes were rising and we actually saw quite a catch-up in terms of house-priced income multiples. But what that argument misses is that over the last 18 months, house prices have risen 40%. And in fact, they've really blown out, so much so that answers that you might have given as a politician a couple of years ago have been blown out of the water. Here's exactly that same question to Jacinda Ardern and the previous leader of the National Party, Judith Collins, before the last election. Paddy Gower asking the question to both of them, would you like to see house prices fall? I don't want them to keep escalating. It's not, sustain- not, it's not sustainable. Um, but, Patty, you know, at the same time, we have to make a difference to the number of houses that are being built. It will be the only thing that will stabilise the house prices okay. and stop this continuous escalation. So, so, yeah, you don't want them to... I don't, I'm not really clear. You don't want them to... What, what, what yeah, do you, if we keep building houses, if we increase no, no, supply... Do you want house prices to go up or down? I don't want them to grow, Paddy. Simple. Okay, so you want them to just stay where they are. I want them to stabilise okay. so that people right, can get Judith into Collins, the market. Do you want house prices to go up or down? In some cases, they're going to have to go... In some cases, they're going to have to go down, but I, th- I agree. You don't want to have people who have borrowed up to the hilt to buy a house suddenly having negative equity. And that's, I think, the problem that Ms Ardern has. Paddy, who so wants to go not, and tell people everything gone? Neither of you actually give me a clear answer on this. No, no, but I can tell you the way to do it, look at Christchurch. We built, we got rid of the RMA for the purposes of the earthquake rebuild, and actually we built so many houses there that house prices there have actually dropped and they're completely stabilised. So that's the idea. Let's do a Christchurch for the whole country. Uh, The trouble is, in fact, since that election, house prices have risen 50%. With a 50% house price rise in a couple of years, we're now at a position where house price to income multiples are 11 or 12 
in our main cities. That's up from what used to be considered normal of around two or three. And for a long period over the last 15 years, that sort of wobbled between five and eight. Eight, of course, is very painful. Five is something that some people think is um, normal, but now we're at 12. So we, we've been blown completely out of the water. It means that even if house prices did not move a jot. They were flat as a pancake for 20 or 30 years. Only by the end of the 30 years or so would we see house price to income multiples back to some sort of normal level. Actually, since that election, the Prime Minister has said she wants to make house prices more sustainable. She doesn't use the word affordable anymore. Sustainable. And she sees house price inflation of around 5 to 7% as normal and sustainable. What that would mean is that there wouldn't be any improvement in house price affordability because prices would be rising just as fast as incomes, which tend to rise around that 5 to 7% mark. Now, they all understand that gravity of what's just happened in the last couple of years. And so they're throwing everything at it. We saw that bipartisan agreement between National and Labor, Judith Collins and Megan Woods, to really, again, do a Christchurch, which is throw the RMA out of the window and change the rules so that on any section in the big cities, you could build a three-storey townhouse and three of them on the one section. Now, this has caused huge blowback from people in the leafy suburbs who don't really want anyone living near them, peering down into their backyard, blocking out the sun, and are blocking it as fast as they can, as hard as they can, in council chambers. And of course, it's now going through Parliament. The reason I jumped on this again this week is that Christopher Luxon is now starting to be a little bit wobbly on whether or not National is still committed to this bipartisan accord. And as you can see there, he, like many politicians, is now engaging in sort of magical thinking that somehow we can get to affordable by just having house prices flat. That's not possible anymore anytime soon. We're talking decades, a whole generation that misses out. So what you have to do is either see a big drop in uh, rents or house prices or an explosive growth in incomes, which is not going to happen. The new magical thinking we've seen in recent weeks has come from this idea that you could have house prices in the suburbs, the standalone houses on sections, actually stay flat for 20, 30 years, and you would see more affordable new types of houses, studio apartments, one, two-bedroom departments and townhouses close to the centre, which have more affordable price points, sort of three, four, five hundred thousand dollars $500,000, and rents closer to $300 a week than $500 a week. And then magically, house prices of the people who are voting at the moment don't actually fall, and a whole bunch of new people get affordable housing, and the median and the averages drop, but actually existing house prices don't. That's the magical idea, a sort of a Goldilocks, not too hot, not too cold, just right. This week, I wanted to challenge that assumption. So I started first by talking to Curtin Lees, an economist with Sense Partners, who's done a big study with PwC on exactly what these new rules, the medium density residential standards, the ones that allow three stories and three houses per section, what they would do to supply and what that might do to house price inflation and rents over the next 20 years or so. And more importantly, what that would do to intergenerational wealth transfer, and in particular, wealth transferred away from homeowners to renters and first home buyers through having rents and house price inflation lower than would otherwise be the case. 
And what Curtin found is that over the next 20 years, we could see over 200,000 new houses built because of these MDRS standards, rather than if they hadn't been there at all. And in Auckland, over 100,000 houses. You'd see house price inflation, meaning house prices were around about $130,000 less in 20 years' time than they would have been without the policy. Not actual house price deflation, but lower. Now, the report didn't go into what an actual affordable house price would be in terms of house price to income multiples, but he thinks around about five sounds about right. That would mean potentially a 40 to 50% house price fall. Now, the MDRS is not even enough to do that, but certainly that would be a major change, although only a price fall back to where prices were about two years ago when Judith Collins and Jacinda Ardern were asked that question about where they would like to see house prices to be. Then I spoke to Jade Kake, who is an architect and a planning expert who's very focused on the MDRS debate. And then I spoke to Chloe Schwarbrick, who is the Auckland Central MP, the Green MP, who is campaigning hard to get these sorts of houses built and is right at the centre of this battle, really for the future of New Zealand, a battle between a group of people who own $1.6 trillion worth of housing and are fighting tooth and nail to stop a new housing supply shock hitting the market and robbing them of what it turns out is $198 billion, estimated by Sense Partners, $198 billion worth of wealth transfer from existing homeowners to future renters and first home buyers if this MDRS goes through. In a way, it's the mirror image of the intergenerational wealth transfer that's happened over the last 20 or 30 years when homeowners essentially sucked forward the value of house price inflation away from future generations of homeowners and from renters who, of course, are overpaying for rent. That's what's at stake in this fight, a fight that's about magical thinking, three-storey houses, and a debate about the future of wealth. I'm Bernard Hickey with a podcast on the Spinoff Network, which Apple has judged as one of the top 10 new podcasts in 2021 in New Zealand. Thrilled to bits, and it's great to have so many people listening in. That's this week on When the Facts Change. Welcome now to Curtin Lees, who is an economist at Sense Partners and worked with the people at PwC on a report analysing what the medium-density residential standards could do for costs and benefits, not just in Auckland, but in the rest of the country. Thank you very much, Curden, for coming on to When the Facts Change. Uh, Kia ora, everyone. Hey, I'm trying to understand why might it be a good idea to densify housing in a city in terms of the costs and the benefits and the potential impact on housing supply, inflation, that sort of thing? Two real reasons. One is we think about sort of housing market dynamics, and really by that we just mean more houses made more cheap, cheaply available for everybody, yeah? So thinking about that as the kind of the big driver of this policy. Second one is really what economists like to call agglomeration impacts, big word. And there's really two ways to look at it. You can look at it through the lens of a firm, then you can look at it, well, what's in actually in this for me? What's in it for a worker? When we actually sort of allow uh, cities to intensify, we get more people that are 
able to kind of go to, to more jobs and that what we talk about is our labor market is kind of deeper. And if you're a firm, that's really great. Instead of actually just looking for, say, an engineer, all of a sudden you can look for an engineer with that's actually a civil engineer and that civil engineer's got the experience you need. They've built some bridges before. Second kind of key idea is we actually love living in cities because we can talk to one another, we share ideas, and so that civil engineer is actually talking to someone else that's in finance or a slightly different thing and they've got some ideas and all those ideas just flow around much more easily if we're kind of close to one another. And that actually sort of helps our productivity a little bit, that sort of idea exchange, and the economists love that kind of thing. And it shows up in the data as well. Kind of a third leg is, um, if we have enough people within a city, then instead of just having one or two people that are supplying our firm with, I don't know what it is, if it's the cleaners, if it's the financial services, if it's the lawyers, all of a sudden we've simply got a lot more options to think about who we might actually want to supply for our particular uh, product or service that we might create. And so that competition's actually quite helpful and we get that when we have sort of these dense kind of cities. Now from a worker's perspective, that's all well and good, but what's in it for me, you might ask? Well, what is in it for people that move to cities is that higher sort of productivity, that the, those benefits that come from the firm side, generally they're gonna translate into higher incomes for people that live in cities. Not always, but a lot of the time. And simply another thing is why people move to cities is that you've got more opportunity. You've got more opportunity in terms of just the volume of jobs, but then people actually like to be in a specific niche often. So they want to try out their skills in a very kind of, you know, I like building bridges, so I want to be doing that type of work. Or I like economics, so I want to be doing this type of work. And that's possible, a little bit more possible within our cities. COVID is changing that a little bit, um, but still there's lots of reasons to think that we're more productive when we locate close together. People also enjoy the social and consumption side of living in cities. So if you live in a city, it's not just that you've got the opportunity to go out and experience live music, but you can choose the type of music that you might want to go and see. So for Christopher Luxon, apparently it's country, or maybe it's country and western, but for the rest of us, it might be another specific niche. So for some people, it might be metal, and then maybe it's a particular genre that you might get access to, or you might get access to sort of a live music in a particular type of venue. Whereas if you're living in a much smaller city, you've got to wait a year or so until she had come around or something like this, yeah? So on the social side, there are benefits that economists think uh, come from living in cities. Now, we don't actually include those in the report because we think they're quite hard to measure, uh, but we certainly think that that's part of the, the proposition here. Just looking at those costs from a council infrastructure point of view, if it has, has a choice between building completely new suburbs with completely new pipes and roads and parks and things, or doing infill, for the want of a better word, uh, adding more houses, denser housing types in an existing area that's already got roads and some pipes. So how much of a benefit is it that uh, densification of existing city and town areas rather than greenfields? Yeah, so, so certainly at the moment, infrastructure's got a lot of, lot of heat and a lot of energy. People are really thinking about this and, and a lot, and people get... Uh, excited and I think that you know there's a little bit we're anxious too about trying to think through what might happen if different things play out all the kind of literature all everyone sort of, everyone tells us that look on average brownfields is going to be cheaper from an infrastructure perspective than greenfields 
It's simply the case that if you have more people using the same kind of pipe, that actually in the long run, when you put in place all the repair costs as well, that will generate slightly cheaper infrastructure. Some people come to this report a little bit surprised that infrastructure isn't a larger cost, and it's really a combination of those two factors. The population is the same, and it's just driven by a pattern of where people will live. Now, one thing I found really interesting was a little analysis which talked about transfers from existing property owners to renters and first-time buyers, which suggested that um, over the next 22 years or so, if these houses were built, there would be an accumulation of a value transferred from existing property owners to renters and first-time buyers of $198 billion. And I'm, I'm trying to understand, hey, that's a really big number. And it seems intuitively to be the flip side of the intergenerational transfer that has previously happened as prices have exploded. Could you explain a bit more about how you came up with that sort of intergenerational or that uh, transfer from homeowners to renters and first-time buyers? We've got a large number of houses in the mix, so that's one thing. They're expensive at the moment, and we've got relatively large, you know, reasonably sized falls in, in price from this type of policy, particularly in Auckland, for example. And simply when you do the maths of kind of multiplying that through, you do get these large kind of benefits, um, and we discount over time, of course, that, that come through. Now, when I say benefit, I need to be a little bit cautious there. There's a long tradition in cost-benefit analysis is, is we don't count those transfers, we haven't counted these, the transfers in this cost-benefit analysis that we've done here. We've written them down, but they're not part of the cost-benefit ratio. The reason for that is, I take the view, and, and this is kind of a long-standing principle within cost-benefit analysis, is that the government could always use the tax system to transfer wealth from one section of society to the other. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. I I know. Laugh, but we've just had we've just had fifteen years of political debate about this, and our prime minister sure, said yeah. she'll never do it in her political lifetime. Yeah, so yeah. anyway, I shouldn't laugh. Yeah. Carry on. So um, that was my next point. Is okay. So when I say second best world, perhaps yep. you would respond with third, fourth, fifth, sixth. <laughs> but it's certainly the case that the government could do that. So we followed the standard practice and haven't included those those benefits. But that would push you on kind of the, the right side in terms of making it easier for first home buyers to enter the market and all the kind of intergenerational kind of gap that we've seen. This is a policy that pushes back against that. So, you know, that's a good thing. Decision makers should note that, but that doesn't swing the cost-benefit analysis. This would still be a good policy even if we didn't in include those equity issues. And one of the interesting things that some of the um, backers of this proposal, in particular um, the national side of the equation, say is that um, they obviously don't want to see house prices fall much or at all, particularly for people who already own standalone houses and sections, the you know typical quarter-acre Pavlova paradise. Um, and one of the arguments they put is we can have the best of both worlds. Uh, we can have our cake and eat it too, where we have a lot more affordable, medium-density apartment townhouses that didn't exist before that can be sold at lower prices than the big house plus section. And at the same time, uh, the house plus section price doesn't necessarily fall, but you would have the median and the averages drop. 
What's your view on whether we can sort of have our cake and eat it too? The, the magical, you know, no one loses. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, gold works as a fairy tale. Yeah? Well, I mean, maybe that's my view as an economist, but I think we, we often overstate our ability to set all the sequence of prices, all the quantities that would need to be in place to specify kind of an equilibrium or, you know, supply and demand, not just in the aggregate market, but one bedroom, two bedroom, three bedroom, a villa, and then across kind of a spatial market at the same time, that's just really hard work. And I think it, I couldn't do that, and I struggle to see how, you know, how do you actually do that? And that's where the market can play a role, and what we should be thinking about is how do we get those broad settings right? How do we introduce the flexibility into the market and then let the market Mostly, not always, there's a role for planning here, but to generally kind of show people where the, where the houses should go. And where should the houses go? Well, you and I make those decisions by where we would buy or not buy or rent or not buy. Yeah. So everyone seems to agree that in normal times, our houses are not as affordable as they should be. And I'm trying to understand how big the gap might be in terms of, you know, where a, a normal or a you know, sustainable level of housing affordability for both renters and buyers might be and where we are at the moment in terms of, you know, the, if we were to throw supply at the issue, how would we know we're there yet? So Chris Barker, when he was chief economist at Auckland Council, I think wrote a very good paper on this kind of issue. And it's really about, so where, where things were, where we want to get to, and what are the steps that you need to sort of put in place along the way. And that paper had something like a uh, house price of five to, to, to income being one, that kind of a ratio. And I just don't accept that because we're kind of beyond that kind of a number, somehow we should change the target to get to seven or eight to be more reasonable. And we should still stick with that kind of broad target as being where we want what we want to achieve. Now, house prices have increased dramatically. It is true that interest rates have come down and they have in some ways made mortgages more, more affordable and we should acknowledge that. But still, houses are not affordable and then if we look at something like the deposit in terms of the affordability of a deposit, that's just, you know, skyrocketed as well. So I certainly don't buy in the case that, oh look, it's all interest rates and things are fine. And sort of coming back towards that five to one ratio, I think is the target that we should be thinking about over reasonable periods of time. So there is a gap there and, you know, the economic purist in me says, right, well, let's just unleash supply until we get there and it could mean a 30 or 40 or 50% fall and it might take a year or two or it might take five or ten years. But then there are other people who, who say to me in a slightly startled way, the economy and the banking system couldn't handle it and also the Reserve Bank's been using that housing market as a, a wealth effect tool and um, we just have no choice. It's too big to fail and we can't let it fall. Sorry, cannot do it. <laughs> and that's, that's sure. the economists and the, and the bank regulators, let alone the politicians. So wh wh well, what do you reckon to that idea that we, our economy just can't handle a 30 to 40% house price fall? Look, I, no, I don't have sort of privy into Reserve Bank conversations around these kinds of things, but I would suggest that this looks like a great policy from a monetary policy perspective because it introduces that flexibility into the housing market. So kind of the huge boom that we saw, the, you know, we haven't really seen enough of a bust to be fair, but it should smooth those things out a, a, a bit. We've got more flexibility, more supply. So this looks like the kind of direction of change in terms of housing market policies 
that makes monetary policy a bit easier to do what it should be set out to do. And our banks also have a lot more capital than they used to have, and the Reserve Bank's been quite effective over the last eight or nine years at squeezing down the proportion of mortgages which are at very high LVR, obviously helped by house prices going up quite a bit as well. Yeah, and, you know, like I am not... uh deep in terms of those stress tests but I have sort of looked at the analysis and the commentary that's associated with that and the types of policies we have here are a long way from the types of fall that we might see in house prices that would trigger those kinds of um, boundaries. And just finally uh, Curtin, um, you're an economist, you like the idea of markets, so do I. The purist in me says well we've got a, a price which is clearly unsustainable and what we need to do is just clear out of the way and let supply and demand do its work and we'll end up with an equilibrium which is um, where the market clears and people can afford it and we're all fine. And that's sort of been the approach in a way for the last 30 years or so. What's your view on, you know, where the market failures might be if there are market failures or is it, is it maybe not the right way to look at it? Um, I mean, it's... Uh... In some ways, we can talk about whether it's a market failure or is it a policy failure, and I'm not sure how far that takes us. Um, I mean, I'd argue the the opposite. So in some ways, so almost pre-RMA, we had a lot of policy that was set up for a completely different world. So housing wasn't expensive. We had lots of land available. So perhaps understandably, we put in place policies that would, you know, protect the amenity that we have, uh, make sure our rose garden gets enough kind of sun, things that are generally useful and good and, you know, we enjoy. It's just that house prices moved so far, the cost of retaining those policies for that old world has just sort of gone, literally gone through the roof. So sort of something has needed to change and perhaps we've been just a little bit slow in playing catch up about where we can develop and build and produce homes for, for New Zealanders. Curtin, thank you very much. I really enjoyed uh, the report and certainly informed the debate. Right. Really appreciate it. Thank you for your time. After the break, we speak to architect and columnist about urban design, Jade Karke. When the Facts Change is brought to you in partnership with KiwiBank to help you understand the issues affecting the economy. And that's what their team of experts is here to do too. Here's KiwiBank economist Sabrina Delgado on what's happening with the labour market in Aotearoa. Our slowing economy gives way to higher unemployment and we're seeing tightness in the labour market quickly abating. Both a recovery on the supply side with our surging migration, boosting labour supply and loosening some very tight labour market conditions. But now a stronger narrative is coming through. As consumer demand cools, so too is the demand for labour. Firms are no longer hiring with the same gusto. Already, unemployment has started to lift from record lows and we expect that to continue throughout 2024. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to stay up to date with detailed economic analysis and forecasts from Sabrina and other KiwiBank experts. They take big issues from both here and overseas and make them relevant to Kiwi businesses. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? 
Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and of course past performance does not guarantee future returns. Kia ora. Jade, welcome again to When the Facts Change. Wonderful to see slash hear you. Kia ora, Bernard. Great to see you as well. Tell us about the medium density residential standards, which came out of the blue a bit, surprised us all, whether this could be part of the solution for getting more affordable, warmer, drier, more carbon-friendly houses. Well, I think I would start by saying that it's not going to do all that, and nor should it. So I think that these medium density residential standards as part of the RMA amendment, they fast track aspects of the national policy statement for urban development and they kind of step back on a few and they strengthen some and they add in these medium density residential standards and that's all, all great but it's only going to cover one, one part of the puzzle. So. I think it's really important to note that there has also been some changes to the building code and those amendment, there's some, some of the amendments are specifically around daylighting and so that's kind of a companion document to what's happening with me, this medium density residential standards. And so I think a lot of people have been up in arms or had a lot of views about it and that, that, that discussion's really fantastic but I think there has been a little bit of confusion about the various parts of our system and the various pieces of legislation and policy and what they can and should cover and understanding perhaps the limits of our planning system. So what do you think is missing? Um, there's been a lot of changes put into the MDRS um, so what what is needed? Yeah I think that we need to um, take out some things actually so I don't think it's great that we're specifying setbacks. So I think there's a lot of problems with having front yard setbacks and to a degree side yard setbacks because they generate a certain urban form that might not create the outcomes that we want. So can you explain for someone who, who maybe hasn't heard that phrase setback, they're walking along the street, they see a supposed you know, normal you know, bungalow, standalone house. What do you mean by setback and what do the MDRS rules uh, specify that, that isn't very friendly? Yeah, so it's the distance between the legal boundary of the property and then the building line. So it's just where the building starts relative to the boundary. And there's different uh, setback requirements for front yards and side yards. Uh, when they prepared the um, when the government prepared the information about these medium density residential standards, they did do a bit of a summary table that kind of showed how it compared with the various other council provisions. And I think it's actually reasonably conservative and in line with what a lot of councils are doing. But I think if you want to be a bit more radical and get better built environment outcomes, get rid of the setback requirements um, and also remove or reduce the height in relation to boundary requirements. My argument really is that the planning system shouldn't necessarily be um, setting these standards in place in that way. So I think it should be covered within the building code. Do you think the move towards densification and a version of these MDRS uh, rules will allow different types of houses that reflect the different lifestyles or household formations or different ways that we live? Do you think that this will create more choice and more affordable choice? 
Yeah, I really do. I think it's going to help a lot with housing choice and to have housing that is more um, culturally fit for purpose and suiting multi-generational families and people in all stages of life. I do think something that councils could do in implementing this is incentivize good design. So incentivize accessible design, um, like universal design, incentivize, um, you know, culturally fit for purpose kind of multi-generational housing. Um, I do think on that last one, there are some other things that need to happen. So there probably needs to be some changes to the building code and some other changes to our district plan provisions to enable that to happen more easily. Can you give but us I an, do ex- think- an example of, of a sort of a change that could make it easier? Yeah, so the building code, um, if it's six or more bedrooms, then it because of the, I guess, the fire risk, you end up in a whole nother category. And so once you're past that limit, you're kind of into communal residential or, um, you know, things like boarding houses. And they require greater fire protection, which is Kaithapai, but they also um, link in with the district plan provisions. So a lot of your residential zones might not allow for that type of dwelling. Um, so I think this uh, MDRS and this RMA amendment will support that to a large degree, but I think there's a couple of other interconnected part of the system that need to be modified to better support. Now, the councils seem quite surprised by the strength mm-hmm. of these um, rules that came down in a bipartisan agreement. And part of the mm-hmm. reason I think it's interesting to dive in a bit deeper is because there's some suggestions national with a new leader might um, row back a bit um, Do you think uh, that those councillors who sometimes were a bit rude about (laughs) these rules, they use phrases like, um, you know, this will just create lots of slums. Uh, Mm. This is a, in fact, one Auckland councillor called it a gang rape, which is just horrible, (laughs) just awful in describing what the government was specifying to councils. But there is this complaint that it um, it changes the neighbourhoods of the people who live there. And uh, also, um, a lot of the councils are saying, we can't afford the infrastructure that's needed to beef up the pipes and the roads and provide more parks and that sort of thing. So what do you think of those criticisms? So, I mean, as part of the NPS uh, for urban development, there is a requirement that they assess the capacity of their infrastructure and the future infrastructure planning required to accommodate that growth. And so there's quite a lot for them just in that process that they will already be underway. Um, If they go through that process and there's genuinely not adequate funding for infrastructure, noting that there is, um, you know, some new funding that has been announced, but if councils still feel that's not enough, well, I think there needs to be a further discussion about how infrastructure is financed in this country. But I don't think that's not, that's a reason not to intensify. I think that's a reason to initiate a discussion with central government around how infrastructure is funded. So, and again, if they do their projections around development contributions and decide that's not going to cut it, well, what what, what is going to cut it? Because there is demand, there is a need for growth and intensification. And on that earlier point around councillors being in opposition, I think a lot of these councillors are, in fact, um, you know, protecting their own class interests. So a lot of these people probably own beautiful homes in leafy suburbs and they really enjoy having, you know, the green space, this wonderful amenity, not a lot of neighbours around, but close access to workplaces and cafes and bars and, you know, public parks, all these great things. But I would say if you're opposed from that perspective, well, for one, nobody's going to force you to sell your house so it gets developed for apartments. 
that's something that might happen later if you decide to sell and the next person to purchase decides to develop it for apartments or other medium density options. So that threat isn't a current one. And the other part is that actually I think that people are just hoarding that amenity for themselves. And really what we do need to do is intensify these inner city areas so that our cities are more compact and operate more efficiently. And these can be well-designed, beautiful spaces. And I don't really buy the argument around loss of green space because that should be factored into our streetscapes as well as any open space and reserve planning. And maybe that could be a financial contribution that comes from the developer to support strategic acquisition of land and to develop further green space if it's in an area where it's intensifying, but there's not adequate amenity. But we know our inner city areas have great access to amenity. Um, so those are the ones that really should be redeveloped. Do you think it's possible to have your cake and eat it too, to do that Goldilocks thing where you have lots of new, smaller, uh, nice apartments, but at the same time, all of those people with those lovely villas with backyards, their prices don't actually fall? I don't think you can have both and we shouldn't strive to have both. I think it's really a matter of what do we as a society value? Do we value having uh, housing as a human right and everyone well-housed in well-functioning cities? Or do we value our property and assets as individuals? And I, I, don't, I, I, don't, I think those ideals are kind of incompatible. And so it's kind of a nice political byline to think we can have both. And I'm not saying you can't, there won't be a transitional phase. You know, as I said earlier, as nobody's going to make you sell your villa to develop it for apartments. But I just think that we're on a positive trajectory where we've got adequate housing that's affordable, of good quality, and it's part of high-functioning communities and really well-functioning compact cities. This is the direction that we're on, and I think there's going to be a, a declining um, space for these you know, individual homes in highly sought-after, high-amenity areas that are worth a uh, very large amount of money. And finally, just what about this idea that um, this is daylight robbery? That, that these three-storey um, buildings are going to overshadow my backyard, that I love having my barbecues with my mates and parking my boat in the, in the driveway with my two double cab utes. What do you think about that argument? Get with the times. <laughs> <laughs> I just think it's an absurd privilege to be able to think that way. Thank you very much. Uh, Jay, wonderful to have you on When the Facts Change. You're very welcome. So we've heard about the economics and the urban design of the MDRS standards, but what about the politics? Because right now there's a big fight going on in council chambers and in parliament about whether this will actually get through. Well, we caught Chloe between meetings on the run in Auckland. So, Chloe, do you think house prices should fall? Yeah. Uh, it is a position that the Greens have held since Mitsuri Oture came out uh, relatively bravely, I think, at that point in time in 2015 or 16, biting the bullet and saying that what I think you've coined, Bernard, uh, is magical thinking, that we could somehow end up with this kind of Goldilocks zone of supply steadily increasing uh, and us somehow dropping prices without dropping prices. Incomes continue to increase. Uh, but as, you know, the facts themselves belie, 
why, and I think you've done the number crunching on this, if we have that uh, sustained moderation, in the words of the Prime Minister, at around 4% per annum, uh, with wage growth at the level that it is, we're looking for another 50-odd years until we've got the level of affordability that things were in only, I think, the early 2000s. Now, we keep asking the Prime Minister and the Finance Minister, what is an affordable house in terms of rents as a percentage of income, let's say, or a house price as a percentage of income? Uh, what do you think is an affordable um, rent or house price and how does that compare with where we are now? Because I suspect there's a gap. It's just a matter of how big. Yeah, of course. And I mean, you know, the internationally acceptable measure is typically a ratio. Uh, if we're talking about a house price unto itself, obviously rents are, you know, typically considered to be affordable about 30% of somebody's uh, income. Uh, for a house to be purchased, it's typically a ratio of one to three or one to five times. Uh, you wouldn't be the only one who's been asking this question. It's also been something that I've been trying to pin down. Not only, I might say, our Minister of Finance, but also the Reserve Bank Governor. Uh, and, you know, to date, uh, actually in our most recent uh, hearing at Finance and Expenditure Committee, uh, he quite forthrightly pushed back on what I think he saw um, as kind of perceivably schoolyard quibbles or something from me, where I was trying to remind him that this was the most important issue consistently to New Zealanders across the board, across polls. Because he has said that house prices are unsustainable, and if you say... Finally, I might add, finally. <laughs> yeah. And if you say that, you know, let's say it's five times income, because currently they're 11 or 12 times income, potentially <laughs> that could involve some sort of halving of prices. And if you're going to do it before today's generation of school leavers and uh, polytech and university leavers are thinking of being able to buy their own home or even just rent their own home in the next mm. five years or so. It has to be pretty quick. So that could potentially be a, you know, 40% fall in house prices. Do you think that's something that's reasonable or that our economy or society could handle? Well, I mean, you only have to look at how much house prices have increased and inflated over the period of the last one and a half to two years uh, with this global pandemic. Uh, you know, if we were to have a correction of, you know, a hundred thousand dollar price fall uh, on average, the median house price over the next uh, tomorrow, it would still be more in a, more expensive and less affordable than things were at the beginning of the pandemic. So, you know, putting that in perspective for people is really important. The other thing to note, of course, is the difference. And I think this is where uh, I feel that there's been some quite marked political sleight of hand. The difference of terminology between affordability and sustainability to try and unpack that for people, uh, affordability is, of course, when we're talking about things like those ratios, can the average person actually afford this thing? Sustainability, when you're talking about it from the perspective of our central bank or from the perspective of MOF, the Minister of Finance, of course, uh, you are talking about whether we have financial stability, that is, whether all of the mortgages are going to fall over, which is why we're starting to see things like LVRs and DTIs being implemented. So uh, you could have arguably a completely sustainable housing market as far as financial stability uh, is concerned if it was totally unaffordable and everything was owned by one member of the landed gentry. <laughs> but that's not a 
affordable and I think it's also not what New Zealanders are seeking to get out of kind of a political outcome here but that being said of course you've also noted regularly Bernard that it's considered by many to be political suicides to push for house prices to drop so I'm I guess standing testament as the MP for Auckland Central and a Green MP at that that campaigning on a wealth tax and a guaranteed minimum income and stating quite clearly that house prices have to fall isn't necessarily the political suicide that some may think it is. One of the issues though is if you're an individual, let's say you managed to get into a house last year, you scrambled, you stopped believing that the politicians would solve the problem, you just thought, right, I'm going to get in there, I'm going to beg, borrow, steal, I'm going to, you know, um, connect up with someone who I don't really like, but their parents own property, so that's what I'll do. I'm desperate. I'm finally in there with this big honking mortgage, and then someone gets into power and cuts house prices 40% and I'm slammed. I've just been wiped out. That doesn't seem fair. This is one of the problems here. It's like a catch-22. If you solve the problem, you punish the ones who've just got in. Or to avoid things going up any further, you essentially stop the, the next generation from getting in. You're pulling up the ladder. How do you deal with that? those, those sort of transitional problems? And those trade-offs as well. And I guess, uh, you know, in unpacking this as an issue, you have to speak about the problems that we've got if nothing uh, is to be done as well. Uh, that's where you continue to see the exacerbation of this financial unsustainable, or this unsustainability of house prices and financial instability risk, as has been outlined by Governor Adrian Orr of RBNZ. So, you know, therein, you look at a potential crash or bursting of the bubble, which is completely completely uncontrolled. Uh, but, you know, as many economists have written about, there is effectively a political guarantee that this is not going to happen. So you'd probably see some political action to stop it. So for me and for us and the Greens, this comes down to those trade-offs and how we go about doing the most equitable change that we possibly can. Uh, you know, speaking actually to that experience of somebody who was a relatively new um, homeowner and took on an extortionately high mortgage, yes, you'd be talking about me um, and my partner. You know, my parents are both renters and, you know, now having purchased in the city centre in an apartment without a car, I have and live one of those lifestyles that you've just been painting, but nonetheless, it still is something which is totally off the table to most of my mates in their late 20s through to their late 30s and early 40s, which obviously causes all of these other potential issues when you've set up an entire economy based on the security of somebody having a home to draw down on. So uh, how do we make this as fair as possible? Well, we make it as fair as possible by being upfront about the political challenges in front of us. I want politicians across the aisle to stop lying and pretending that House prices are going to become more affordable in our lifetimes, that somehow that can be achieved without house prices dropping. Because it's the maths, the basic maths do not add up. So ultimately, it's a sort of a problem of the political economy. And we're seeing this play out now around council tables in the last three or four weeks as they get a look at the MDRS, which obviously hasn't gone all the way through Parliament, but within theory for now, both major parties um, supporting it. Um, they're a bit shocked. And in fact, some of the language that's come out of councils from centre-right, national-aligned councillors, citizens and ratepayers councillors, and some other conservatives, um, sometimes surprising. Um, sometimes uh, grotesque. Yeah, some, some conservatives from what, what you would call the left um, have been very aggressive. Uh, mm. Is there a risk here that essentially the people who vote in council elections 
and typically homeowners, uh, particularly older homeowners, vote at much, much higher rates than renters in council elections, that at next year's election there's going to be an almighty backlash that wipes out a lot of the sort of young uh, urban liberals who are trying to get lots of medium-density houses built. Uh, not if I have anything to say about it, and not if my progressive mates have anything to say about it. I think we are starting to see a radicalisation in politics of particularly not only just younger people, but middle-aged and some older people now too, as a result of their direct experience of just how messed up the housing market is. It is in practice, most people's day-to-day experience of inequality and inequity. And, you know, as we've recently seen in, uh, you know, the uh, research of, I've forgotten his name, phenomenal Max Rashbrook uh, and his most recent reporting um, in his book, just how little we actually have um, in terms of data on that kind of wealth, gaping wealth gap in this country. And of course, um, Minister David Parker is uh, investigating this at the moment. I've had him in front of uh, Finance and Expenditure Committee and asked him many a question about what he's going to do with this, whether when he finds out the inevitable that uh, you know there are uh, those at the top of the pecking order are not paying uh, the equivalent effective tax rate of those who are at the bottom, uh, is he going to tax them hard? or tax wealth or capital or whatever else. And, you know, he's kind of said, we'll just wait and see. But obviously, with the promises from our Prime Minister, that that is what that is. So... Uh, Are we going to see a wiping out of the progressive around the council table? I think that this to me comes down to uh, reinvigorating the local government's kind of political sphere. It comes down to reminding renters that they are ratepayers too and that uh, their landlords are not just magicking up this money to pay for those rates. It is coming out of the rent that they are paying. So, uh, you know, reminding people that politics is everywhere around them and that local government has a huge amount to do with their day-to-day lives when they, you know, turn on the tap and water comes out, uh, when they walk down the street, the footpaths, when they go into a cafe and they can know that the food's not going to kill them. Uh, you know, the, the cost, the access to and the quality of all of those things are determined by political decisions and those closest to us are in local government. And I think if you look at, you know, just the past two local body elections, uh, we've seen a massive influence flux of younger and more radical candidates. You know, in 2016, uh, it was pretty random and out the gate to many of my mates that I was putting myself forward for the Auckland mayoralty at the time. And from being a relative unknown, managed to garner, you know, just less than 30,000 votes and come in third place, getting Phil Goff on the record to commit to things that he otherwise might not have. We've now obviously got around council tables, uh, not just here in Auckland, but also um, at local boards here, but also on wellies, you know, um, my mate. Councillor Tamitha Paul and a range of others who have been pushing for more intensive uh, housing. Just a a slightly um, pointed question in a way about green politics because um, there are some elements in the Green Party who are quite conservative when it comes to inner city development. Um, There's some trees that they quite like to keep and we've seen, particularly in the Wellington Council, where I've been watching a bit more closely, there's a couple of Green councillors who have been conservative, let's say, let's say Mm. on these issues of housing. Is this settled within the Green Party? Is everyone on board here? I think you can say, based on everything that you've just explained and uh, the kind of commentary that's coming out on social media, that it's not. 
And I think that that is a really important debate, uh, working through some really crunchy issues and, you know, perceptions and values and manifestations of values that we have to work through as a broader party. Because you'll also see from, you know, even the likes of Julianne's statements on kind of Wellington's planning recs uh, versus those of um, some of our endorsed councillors that there was some divergence there as well. So this isn't just an intergenerational thing. This is, I guess, a lived experience thing. This is also a, you know, trade-off amongst the things that you value But as the likes of, you know, Jay Kake has well outlined, um, we can have and we should have high quality, medium and high density housing that is surrounded by good quality parks and infrastructure. Again, fundamentally, all of these things are political decisions. Just finally, um, democracies aren't very good at um, dealing with these long term investment issues and also intergenerational fairness because they tend to make decisions based on very short-term interests and the short-term calculations, trade-offs that are easily to, easy to identify and simply because they're about to happen or they're painful right now, it, it makes it very hard to, to change things in a democracy, uh, particularly for those who uh, have a lot at stake. They have a lot of assets and interests to protect and therefore the status quo is exactly what they want. And of course they have the time and the assets to um, organise and stop change. I'm just wondering how does a democracy deal with this problem where the wider the inequality, the harder the those with means fight to keep it, in part so they can pass it on to their kids. There's, there's like a desperation. I can't let it go now because otherwise my kids won't get into housing. I won't be able to afford to withdraw the equity to buy their house. You, you get, do you see what I mean about um, yeah. the, the, as equality, inequality gets worse, it, even, it becomes even harder to fix? Well, it definitely becomes uh, a grosser fight and it also uh, sees far more disingenuous and nasty tactics deployed. So, I I mean, to that point around how does democracy solve this? Well, democracy solves this by actually functioning like democracy and not functioning like uh, the analogy that I so frequently use, a game of monopoly, which was invented uh, to actually showcase the problems of effectively a capital-based economy where everybody was just, you know, the first in, first served and then able to continually rent seek and not do any kind of productive engagement or innovation or creation within the economy. So how do we solve this? Um, Through a realignment of power. Um, And that is, you know, analysis uh, that requires, I guess, particularly those who currently feel very downtrodden and are far more inclined to therefore become apathetic and to disengage to do the very opposite of that, which has got to be one of the hardest asks when you are trying to fight for something as opposed to defend something that you feel as though you are entitled to. Uh, And, you know, I was actually on... Uh, Hui this morning with a number of phenomenal young scholars from uh, universities across uh, Balmaki Makoto who have been doing intensive research 
on just how hard work it is to be poor in this country. And that's one of the narratives that really gets my go. And it comes out every single time I talk about housing, every single time I talk about how, you know, those who are owning assets are generating unearned income effectively, where, you know, those who are working really hard and labouring are not seeing the same amount of return for what they're putting into our economy. Uh, and, you know, so frequently I hear back, oh, well, it was hard work and it was creative thinking and, you know, they were they deserve that. And there's this notion of who deserves to be wealthy. And to that extent, I can only say, you know, what kind of economy, what kind of citizen, what kind of society, what kind of communities do we, do we actually want to incentivize here? Because we haven't set up the rules in a way that actually incentivizes people to, to do that kind of constructive participatory work within our democracy. And I mean, you only have to look at the organization and the success of supermarket workers who unionized and fought for higher wages just this past week to see how you yeah, gotta take the fight to the man to win. Um, and yeah, that's the call to action. Folks need to get involved. I'll let you get back to the fight. Chloe, thank you very much. Wonderful to have you on When the Facts Change. When the Facts Change was brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network, together with KiwiBank. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to find out how KiwiBank are making Kiwi better off. Kia ora e te iwi, te aihe Butler here, Podcast Manager at the Spin-Off. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, consider supporting our mahi by signing up to become a Spin-Off member at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.